Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. It's my pleasure to be joined on the GWORD today by Joe Taylor, who's the chief exec and founder of After Breast Care Diagnosis, um, ABCD, and the founder of MetUp UK, which is a patient advocacy group in the UK, which is changing the landscape around secondary or metastatic cancer through working with patients, uh, direct action. Um, Joe's very active on social media, a renowned patient advocate and activist. And um, it's my pleasure to have you on the pod. Joe, welcome welcome to the Jeward. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Chris. It's a pleasure. Joe, tell us a little bit, if you can, about how you first got involved in this world. Um, have you always been involved in the space or was it through your own diagnosis that you became active in the space? Yeah, it was um, really because of my own diagnosis. So I was diagnosed with early stage primary disease 14 years ago. At the time I was on maternity leave. So I literally went from maternity leave to um, menopause in a very short space of time with a five month old and a nearly two and a half year old. We didn't have cancer in the family. I was under the impression that you know, I couldn't get cancer unless it was in the family. And that was a bit of a shocker later on to kind of find out about that. Yeah, really didn't know anything about cancer and thrown into this complete and utter different world of, um, you know, treatments and surgeries and radiotherapy and all these things that I had to kind of learn about in a, a very short space of time. I think everybody is on that massive curve when you're diagnosed from being, you know, you, everything's kind of fine, hunky-dory, things are going okay, to finding a lump or, you know, what, whatever it is, and, you know, just just massively having to learn different things. Yeah, it was, um, it was a, a, a strange and a hard time at the time. I'm sure. And what was the, what was the role that you were on... Um... Matley from, what, what were you doing before? I worked in an estate agent, so I was just there part-time. I'd had quite a high-powered, you know, like a professional job for 18 years, left that, I was made redundant, worked in uh, the electronics industry, semiconductor manufacturing, and um, worked in marketing sales first, and then it was marketing executive. So it was a worldwide company, so I had that kind of Understanding knowledge of, you know, sales marketing, you know, working with a big, big company, like $100 million forecasting. That was then and then did something completely different and wanted to just get into, a, you know, just just working in a, in a normal environment because I decided to then have children. I'd actually put having children off for quite a while because I was quite career orientated and um, yeah, you find out that you're, you're just a bit of a number 
um, sometimes. And then, you know, your perspectives change and you kind of realise what really matters. Real life moments. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we'd been married for 13 years before we had children. Um, Everybody thought that we were never going to have kids. It was always there, wanted to do that, but always had career holidays, nice things, kind of, you know, came before wanting that responsibility. And it is a responsibility, having children. And I, I took that very, very seriously. It wasn't something that I went into lightly. Completely. And it, and it must have... It must have been extremely difficult now then having, I guess, sort of made that commitment and to have this diagnosis. And how did you go from being a patient, one of one of many patients who will have that devastating news um, in a in a year to someone who was so proactively trying to change this this landscape that you found yourself in? Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, it was, well, actually, um, so I was diagnosed two weeks after I'd uh, found the lump, went through the, you know, the system, the normal, the normal two week, you know, wait kind of thing, um, biopsies, et cetera, et cetera. And probably three days after I was diagnosed, I had spoke to my sister-in-law. So my sister-in-law worked as a nurse. She actually knew somebody who was a breast care nurse. And I was talking about different kind of surgeries that I wanted. And I was introduced to somebody who had a specific reconstruction um, locally, went to see this lady, as women do, showed me what she'd had done. Um, and I thought, oh, interesting. Um, I'm interested in that because I'm 38. I'm a young woman. Um, I didn't just want to go around having a breast um, removed without any reconstruction. You know, that that was my kind of thinking about it. So, um, yeah, so three days after, I was actually seeing somebody um, who was showing me this. And it kind of started off that thought in my head of advocacy because I was saying I'd, I'd actually um, then been to see, so probably two weeks after I went to see the, so the breast kernels actually came to see me. And she provided me just with a couple of pictures of mastectomies. And, and I just said, is there nothing else? You know, what other surgeries do you, do you kind of offer? And it was like, no, that's it. So I told her about this, what I'd seen. And she said, well, we don't offer that. And that kind of started off an idea of, well, why do people not get these options? Why isn't there a choice? Why is it that I can actually go within my own you know, cancer alliance or cancer, well, cancer hospitals or hospitals in the area and get a different surgery from another hospital, but not actually be told about it. Why are people not explaining that? So that actually started off the idea of we need choices and patient need, need choices. So that was the start really of the, um, the website that I, that I um, eventually created after breast cancer diagnosis. Wow. And so in that sense, when you were first diagnosed um, 14 years ago, it's a kind of, it sounds like a classic example of what people sometimes call that sort of postcode lottery, right? That if you're, if you're talking to this person in this hospital, you get this answer, talking to another person in another hospital, you get another answer. Yeah. Wow. And so what was the goal of setting up uh, after breast cancer diagnosis? It sounds like a bit to do with information, but also I'm guessing broader than that. Yeah. Um, Again, patient choices. It was basically like a one-stop shop for information. I mean, for me, it was my voice uh, as a patient because 
when you are diagnosed, you get tons of leaflets. I mean, I don't know whether you've, you know, had a relative or had an experience like this. And, um, you know, you get all this information and actually it's not always real life. It's not the way that it always happens. So I wanted to be that voice there of, you know, these things, yes, you know, it's great to signpost to, it's great to have that information, but actually the reality is this. And, you know, through the patients, through me talking, through me blogging, um, you know, I started blogging quite early on as when I developed after breast cancer diagnosis, um, just to share with people, you know, my experience of, of the journey. And other people had started that, you know, this was probably eight years ago now. Um, other people had started that already. There was a, a couple of well-known bloggers in the UK who were doing that kind of thing for breast cancer. And yeah, it was just about that kind of support and information and for people to know that they weren't alone and you know, um, there are other people out there and it, it was actually making that community as well. I think that's always really important that, that you have a community of other people who you can speak to because at three o'clock in the morning, who's there on social media, you'll find patients, you know, talking about things or they can't sleep, they're worried, you know, all these issues. So, so yeah, it kind of developed from there really and from that then it went to you know, developing other things like the infographics and the the retreat that I do as well. So I do an exercise retreat because I've always been massively involved in my own health, you know, keeping fit, you know, before cancer. And then to me, it shouldn't have to change after cancer. It doesn't just stop. You can still have, you know, a really good life doing the things that you've always done, even after primary cancer. Well, I was going to say lots of the lots of the photos of you um, online. If if anyone taps in Joe Taylor into Google, uh, standing on top of an impressive looking um, hill or fell or dale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I live in Saddleworth, so the retreats what I do are actually held in this area. So I, what I do is I, I get around about eleven, ten or eleven patients here to give them motivational exercise. You know, to get them either have it, you know, starting some exercise or continuing the exercise or just being around people who have the same ideas, the same problems with cancer. And and again, what I say to them, it, it, it people always focus on that. Oh my God, it's exercise. Or oh, what you're going to have them have me doing? Is it like boot camp? Or you know, they think that I'm going to absolutely run them run them ragged. And yes, I do a little bit. But actually what it is, is the conversations in between and, you know, it's those snippets of, oh, that happened to me. Yes, it happened to me as well. You know, and, and talking about, you know, the issues that we have with mental health, with, you know, all these issues with side effects and fear of cancer return, all these things that we have. And then it has become something a lot bigger than I expected it to be. So it sort of snowballed in that sense. And You've also founded MetUp UK, and I guess to some extent that's dealing with a problem that's kind of further down the journey for, for most people. Just like tell us a little bit about why you felt the need to set up something something distinct to address that and, and what MetUp UK does. So seven years after I was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer, I did 
develop incurable secondary breast cancer. So I don't know whether people know about it, but just to explain, secondary breast cancer is when it travels to a different part of the body. And when it travels to a different part of the body, like, um, and these areas are um, the bones, the lungs, the brain, the lymph nodes, and the liver, those are the kind of main areas that it would, you know, travel to. So when that happens, again, it's it's an incurable and in effect terminal illness. And people don't live always a long time with that. The median life expectancy is two to three years. People sometimes quote two to five years. But actually, um, you know, we, we know people like we say with triple negative disease who are living a lot shorter. You know, yes, there are some people who are living longer, like myself, I'm seven years down the line which is absolutely brilliant, but not everybody has the same opportunities, has the same kind of treatments. And again, this, this is why I created MetUp UK. I watched a lot of what was happening over in America, uh, had friends over there, joined BCSM, which is Breast Cancer Social Media, hashtag on Twitter, used to listen and, and, and read what they were talking about. And these were huge advocates and clinical people who were involved in this um, kind of new social media of openly discussing problems and issues. And it made me very aware of secondary breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer, as, as they call it. So I was aware myself and people weren't really aware of, of the disease. And I think this is where MetUp has kind of taken the, you know, the, 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 the issue of, of awareness and, kind of run with it because with ABCD, what I did was create an infographic about the signs and symptoms, the red flag symptoms of where it would, you know, where it would travel to. And this is now being used by NHS England as a signposting tool, the infographic, so that people are aware of that because it's it's like a missing link. You know, it's great that, you know, primary people can move on, um, have the treatment, and, you know, get to a point where, whether it's five years, whatever it is, there are um, no evidence of disease. But actually, you've still got to be aware because there are around about 30% of early stage people who will go on to develop that disease. Now, we haven't got, nobody in the NHS, nobody, you know, has got a tool that will actually say, well, you're cured and you're not, you're going to develop that disease. So it's the fact that you are sat there as worrying with fear of cancer return, thinking, could this a, could this pain be secondary breast cancer? So it's to help clinical people to have that open discussion and a, a talk with their patient and for patients to be aware. You know, everybody talks about early stage red flag issues, you know, whether it's blood in your poo, with bowel cancer or, you know, what, whatever it is, you know, but, but secondary disease, it's not talked about enough and, and it's empowering those people to, you know, be aware of their own bodies and know that, well, actually this issue could be a problem and I need to go back to my oncologist, I need to go back to my team to get that checked out. And again, GPs don't always... Uh, they're not always aware of uh, what secondary breast cancer symptoms are. So 
that's also a problem. So, so yeah, MetUp UK, we're, we're very focused on advocacy work for awareness. We're also focused on work for drug access, access to clinical trials, the issues around data. I'd been working on that for about eight years before I even developed MetUp UK because, again, I knew in America that they had problems with their SEER data, S-E-E-R, the, the system that they use over there, that um, metastatic secondary people weren't counted. So we knew that there were an issue here. So all these things were kind of going around thinking, well, MetUp um, is actually American. Um, it was created by Beth Caldwell and Jenny Grimes. And they wanted that because they were acutely aware, again, that all these things weren't happening. And they wanted what was like HIV. They wanted a disease that we're going to call it chronic. Um, and we're living 20 to 30 years out with it, able to live a good quality of life, you know, getting um, good development of drugs that will extend our lives and survival. So that was that was the start of MetUp UK because I wanted a UK arm of MetUp. Beth was a very good friend of mine. She thought it was a brilliant idea and that's where it, it came from. I love this vision of going from a sort of two or three year, maybe a bit more life expectancy to a kind of 20 or 30 year um, life expectancy. You mentioned the development of, of new drugs. Like what else needs to be true to change that diagnosis from a sort of two or three year death sentence to something that people can manage longer term in the way that I guess diseases like HIV are much more manageable than they were kind of 20 years ago. What does what does getting to there look like? What needs to be true? I think one of the things that's talked about a lot is personalised care. I mean, it's great to say that we, you know, we, we have patients who will have personalised treatment and personalised care, but in reality, it doesn't always work that way because all these things need to link together to get that outcome and that survival um, the best outcome for a patient who's surviving longer. And so the links there, you need you need a really good system in the NHS that all links up with GPs, with, with NHS, you know, with, with the actual hospitals. We need data. Data's the massive big thing that links all this and it's just not been happening. Um, you know, genomics, Genomics England and what, what you're doing, is that always done? It's not always tested as standard. And I, I don't even know whether in clinical trials that that always happens as well. And, you know, genomics is a big part of it because if we don't know what the cancer is, then how can it be treated well? But also that there's a bit of a double-edged sword there with if you do genomic testing and you find out that there is a, um, a mutation that it isn't recognised, then there may not be drugs for a patient. So how do we then deal with that? I think that is a problem. And, you know, what do you do? Do you put everybody into, into a clinical trial, you know, who has a specific mutation? I know that things are moving on with that, but not everyone is able to access a clinical trial like that. And, and again, talking about clinical trials, there are massive restrictions on clinical trials for example, I know friends who have not been able to access clinical trials because uh, they've had, say, a couple of lines of chemotherapy and the restrictions criteria don't actually let them access that trial. Now, when you've got a specific mutation, which one of these friends 
had. And then they're told, sorry, you can't access that drug. You know, then it's devastating. And people die because they can't access trials that could potentially help them with a mutation. And that's, you know, personalised care, we've got to get better at doing this. We've got to have, say, and I think this has been talked about in ASCO as well, we've got to get an arm of people who fall outside that criteria, people who are not the what's called cancer Olympians, you know, people who aren't the fittest, the best, the least least treatment, you know, that's great that you're collecting data on that, but actually it's not real life. That that's not that's not everyone. And again, we're talking about we kind of mentioned before we, we started this, you know, the inequalities, the the disparities that there are and you know, and that's for, you know, black and Asian minority ethnicity. You know, people don't always get access to these things, as well as there is any inequalities in in care of, you know, from postcode lottery type um, issues around the country. So there are many, many issues that need to be connected together. It's it's not as easy as saying, and I heard this the other day, of a golden thread being, you know, of research going through, you know, treatment from here to here. Actually, it's not as easy as that. It's not as simple as that. There's a lot more. It's the kind of thing, it looks great on PowerPoint, but like, how do we make it work in the real world, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's just not working with, with everything else that, that, that there is um, within the system. You know, we seem to be just going round and round in, in perpetual circles of problems that we have data, clinical trials, drug access, nice approvals, you know, are we getting the drug, are we not? What's happening here? You know, technology and everything, we seem to be advancing massively with drugs and technology, but I think our systems are not catching up enough. Getting it to the front line, yeah. And it's that unsexy stuff of actually, does this system talk to that system? And can my GP access the details of what happened to me in a hospital and vice versa and so on, right? Yeah. Um, well, hopefully, not that not the money is the answer to uh, all ills, but hopefully the we're speaking just after the spending review has been announced and there's certainly a lot of money is going to be thrown at this problem over the next few years. So we, uh, we have to hope that that, um, that has an effect. You mentioned genomics, which is obviously something I have a particular interest in. You've, you've obviously educated yourself, like many people, whether they have rare disease or cancer or others who get incredibly smart on these topics um, incredibly quickly. When you were first diagnosed, I'm guessing that you knew a lot less about um, genomics as, as sort of most people do. How can we help people kind of go on that learning journey? Because cancer is ultimately a disease of the genome. How can we help people to understand that and get fluent in the kind of things that you're now fluent in? Like, oh, well, because you've got this variant at this part of your genome, this drug will or, will or won't work. So therefore we go to this fallback option or whatever. Yeah. How can we help people kind of get up that hill? I think it's just really simple learning. Again, there's, I think, you know, when you talk about genetics and genomics, again, there's that confusion there that people think that genomics are genetics and it's it's not, you know, it's completely different. How how do we how do we get people to understand it? I just think simply explain to people, you know, why does it happen? And it's it it you know, I learned all this through I've kind of empowered myself because I've gone to 
to conferences. I've, you know, understood various things. I've put myself in front of research people. I've talked about my story. People have talked to, to me about, about them, about, you know, understanding, you know, things about cancer. And I'm certainly not an expert in cancer at all. But I think I'm an expert in in my own disease. And I think you've got to get to that point where you are an expert like that, that you understand various things. But to understand genomics and where it fits into the pathway, because it's not it's not standard practice. It's not talked about enough. You know, people don't say, oh, well, actually, you could go and get a genomic testing from this company or, or whatever. And you know, it could find out mutations of your cancer. And then actually you could use that information later on in your treatment if there was a clinical trial that you could be matched to. You know, it's all these things that a clinical person needs to have that discussion as well. And it's not, again, it's not a golden thread through the system. So it's not discussed enough uh, because it's not a standard of care Chris, is it? It's not standard of care. So how can it be? How can people understand and learn about it when it's not a standard of care? It's an add-on. And only people like me or, you know, people who are involved in clinical trials and research and, you know, patient advocates who are experts get to understand that and know that it's it's massively important. And and again, talking of unsexy processes, I think the the process by which something goes from being experimental research to kind of clinical some form of clinical trial validation to being something that's alongside or added to the standard of care to over time becoming the standard of care we need to make that process so much faster right that um that it that it shouldn't take 20 years it should take two years or one year or you know six months or whatever and it's interesting actually we are in the we genomics england are in the uh, in partnership with uh, the nhs genomic medicine service so just starting doing um, whole genome sequencing for triple negative um, breast cancer. Uh, that's alongside standard of care. And but what we've um, managed to develop uh, together with uh, with Sue Hill, the chief scientist in the NHS, is that the the test directory for what standard of care is for these different conditions is going to be updated every year rather than every five years. So we're starting to get some of that sort of clock speed. That that surprises me that you were saying that it actually got updated every five years when technology moves on so so much and drugs, you know, from five years ago, what what drugs were like five years ago to now is massively different. Innovation and technology and it, it moves on massively. I mean, I've just got to look at what happened when, you know, I worked for 18 years in, in the semiconductor industry. Mobile phones were were kind of starting then. And, you know, I'm probably one of the first people to understand what Bluetooth was. You know, we, we can't stand still like that. We've got to move with the times, haven't we? We've got to develop things. And it's it, it's then getting access to those those drugs if there isn't a big pot of money. Is there? And that's the the additional problem that we have with, you know, it's great that there's an innovation there, but an innovation isn't isn't great if it's just sat on a shelf. Yeah, that needs to be providing outcomes and survival and quality of life, you know, better for patients. It can't just be stuck there waiting for somebody to access it, you know, because 
And again, it, it, the process of, of that happening, you know, the FDA over in America, that gets approved, uh, you know, and, and, and we understand as patients that it's a different system. It's, it's led by, you know, money. People have to pay for the, the health care over in, in America. But when a drug gets approved over there, we're still behind, say, two years. I, I, I think that is really, really poor when, you know, standard of care is, is so much better and they must be seeing better outcomes because of, uh, of all that. But yet we're still behind. And we talk about being a world leader. How can we be a world leader in, in healthcare when we can't get this right? I mean, one of the issues that, that I have is with her two positive disease, her septum, which is 20 years old, isn't standard of care fourth plus line. Now, it is in other countries and in, in America, and ESMO have just brought out um, new guidance on that, saying that it should be standard of care in all lines because Herceptin trastuzumab was a brilliant drug that is a, you know, is a, a blockade for um, a receptor for HER2. And if you're not using that as a standard of care, then guess what? Patients are dying because of that. You know, chemotherapy alone won't, won't help those patients. You know, so, so why, why do we still have this problem? Why do NICE have to review it again? Why did they throw it out in the first place? I think the links between like the MHRA, um, NICE, the clinical trials, and, and getting that faster clock speed of making those changes to standard of care. As you say, in a world in which the, the technology is moving so fast, the science is moving so fast, the, the clinical context is changing so fast, as we saw with things like COVID, right? Um, you know, we, we have to be able to, to make good, good decisions because decisions have to be good. Absolutely. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to bring COVID up. <laughs> Well, you've just you've just done it, and yeah, people do make those connections with why has you know how how and why have we got a vaccine in a year and cancer? And I know the answer to it because cancer is just such a complex complex disease. And within breast cancer, there's around about twelve different types, I think. And then within triple negative, what you were just talking about before, I think there's about twenty different types now that it's been found within triple negative so so it's so complex and so individual but that's why we need personalized care that's why we need it i will you know respond differently to something that somebody who may have the same disease same type everything they may respond differently to me you know i've had a friend who she's got her two positive disease you know pretty bog standard but she failed all treatments. And on a third line, sorry, it's not working, literally was told that she's got six months to live and then was got access to a clinical trial that has kept her alive for five years. And, and it's things like that that are really massively important um, and people need to be aware of. And again, if she wouldn't have accessed that clinical trial, she wouldn't be alive today. And, and as you say, it's also about how the how both the patient's aware, but I guess also how the clinician is aware, whether that's you know how someone's doctor is aware of the right trial at the right place. You know, it's a lot 
for the doctors to keep up with as well. You know, it's like, oh, what's the latest uh, clinical trial? So how we make that accessible um, to to the doctors who are treating people as well. We need, a, we need what we need, Chris, is a fantastic system that any new trials pops up into um, a, a computerized system onto a patient who has a specific disease and it pops onto them and it goes, oh, there's a trial here. Uh, you could access that, you know, and it'd it, it be done like that instead of, it, it's, it's all very individualistic, isn't it, with, with clinical people, whether you get information or not. Well, I know that um, Martin Landre, who has been working on this quietly for 20 years and then became very famous in COVID with the recovery trials, um, is um, working on uh, on just such a system as, at the moment. So um, hope, hopefully, hopefully that um, that gets uh, that gets traction. Um, I think the 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 challenging bit is always then reverse integrating it with all of the like 25 bazillion existing NHS systems. But um, fingers crossed, <laughs> we, have to, we have to stay positive. Um, Joe, one of the things that I've loved about our conversation is your sort of, I don't want to deal in cliches about uh, Yorkshire, Yorkshire women. Oh, hang on a minute now. Yorkshire, I'm a Yorkshire, I'm a Lancashire. I'm on the border. <laughs> I'm on the fence. <laughs> yes, I am a straight talking Lancashire, Yorkshire woman. Which is which is great, and I think you you mentioned about having more um, honest and open conversations on social media, about having more more honest and open conversations with clinicians, even if it's um, you know difficult or scary news. You know, nothing is as scary as cancer as itself. Um, and I know you've you've been pushing for I don't know if it's a, a more honest, but I think I think you used a phrase like maybe a less fluffy conversation about uh, about breast cancer through the um, hashtag uh, darker pink. Besides your own natural inclination towards straight talking, like maybe just say a bit about why you think that's so important that it's it's not fluffy and that we can have difficult conversations if we need to. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, it just seems to be that because breast cancer is classed as a pink disease, um, you know, and men get affected too. You know, eighty men a year die, around about eighty men a year die of of secondary breast cancer. Around about 300 men are affected um, by primary breast cancer. And yet, so it, it, it just seemed to be pink and fluffy and nice. And it, it, it's great as a marketing tool, that, isn't it? It's fantastic. But the reality is cancer has its own <laughs> reason to be there. And, you know, that's not pink and fluffy. It's not fun having cancer. Whether it's primary cancer, yes, you are cured of primary cancer and nobody dies of primary cancer. And I think that's one of the things that people don't always understand um, because they don't really understand secondary breast cancer as well. Then when somebody gets secondary breast cancer, that's when it's incurable. But I do think that we need to have these open and honest conversations with patients because otherwise... Where is the duty of care? Where is the, you know, we're, we're failing patients otherwise by not being honest with them and saying, well, yes, you are no evidence of disease at the moment. You know, we believe that we've done everything that we can to make sure that the cancer doesn't come back. But unfortunately, you know, there are around about 30% of people who will develop 
secondary breast cancer and we don't know who those people will be so you've got to be completely aware of you know what those red flag symptoms are so that you empowered yourself to understand when you need to um you know go and talk to somebody about this because again i think like what like we've said you know if 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 like primary disease i think perhaps perhaps it needs repackaging like primary disease and how we have find a lump go and see somebody yes it's scary but you've got to go and get it checked out and yeah it's horrible to do that but you know if you don't you could leave it there and it could kill you that's the reality of of cancer so again um with secondary cancer i think we need to repackage it as a you know if you don't catch this early enough then you will die sooner that rather than later i know that sounds really really horrible but but that is the the reality of it you know if we catch a, a secondary cancer and it's metastasized to one area rather than five or six then surely that that's better than than you know than than leaving it to a point where and then it's the interventions that you have to have isn't it it's the fact that you might have to have chemotherapy for a longer time you might have to have certain surgeries i mean if you if you saw what i have had to go through but actually i've gone through it because i want to get to that point of i want as as least cancer activity in my body and that is my oncologist aim for his patients you know um so so i i i mean 3 4 years ago i had my sternum removed and replaced you know most of my sternum removed and replaced um i've just got a little bit at the bottom what wasn't taken away so that was completely different cardiothoracic surgery um because i had metastatic disease in the sternum but that it's possible that you can have surgeries and radiotherapies and various other treatments that again this is the package of personalized care isn't it it's not just about chemotherapy it's not just about targeted drugs actually if we get all this and this was one of the campaigns that we did was hashtag busy living with mets and what it was encompassing was if you get all these things together then actually you can live longer but it's the fact that people aren't getting all these opportunities to have various things not just treatment but surgeries radiotherapies whether it's cyberknife or you know whatever it is to actually give you the best outcome as well i mean i had a brain met last year so and i i had that treated very quickly and i was lucky it was in one place but that was only through again you know my oncologist was on the ball knowing that her two positive disease you've got around about a 50% chance of developing brain metastases now I'd not even mentioned a thing to him and I had have had I was having symptoms but slight symptoms literally knocking banging into a door nothing that I thought was a, a brain tumor I just thought it's the drugs I'm on they're making me wobbly I've got peripheral neuropathy in my feet it's causing these extra extra issues and so I'd had a CT scan which was fine and he just said Oh I think we'll do a brain scan. Why? Oh well we'll just do one. It's 7 years. Right? And it was picked up and you know shocking as it is it's 
the the one other thing, apart from being told that you've got incurable breast cancer, the other thing is because it's so personal, it's in your brain, you know, to be told that you've got a brain metastasis, you've got secondary breast cancer in the brain. It's, I mean, and to be told that when you when you it's under lockdown, that was the second of April, we were just in lockdown. I was told that in in a room on my own, somebody saying, oh, do you want a cup of tea? And you know, when somebody says, do you want a cup of tea? You kind of go, oh no, what now? Husband was sat outside in the car, didn't even have a chance to tell him. And he just thought that everything was unkidori. Got sat in the car and, you know, I've got a brain mate. What? I've got secondary breast cancer in the brain now. So, yeah, my, you know, but again, all these things you, you need to be aware of. And it's only through my oncologist and the, the work that he does with, you know, with his patients that he's just massively on the ball with things. And that's the personalization that I have. And knowing that he can refer me to different things if I've got something wrong here or there. But it's you knowing that there's something wrong. Like I remember when I had problems with the sternum and I'd been lifting I'm going on to random things here, aren't I? Um, I, I was I was doing CrossFit. Um, I was on I was on, was I on chemotherapy at the time? No, I wasn't. I was on treatment though, uh, the standard treatment every three weeks, and I was doing CrossFit and I was lifting like forty kilograms. So you know, because I'm think I'm superwoman, don't I? You know, I can do all these things, and I kept going. Oh, I'm getting a funny pain in me in my chest, and I had a CT scan. CT scan came back. Oh, yeah, that's so oncologist. Oh, yeah, that's fine, your CT scan. I'm going, but I've got a pain in my chest. Oh, we'll send you for a PET scan. And the PET scan literally flashed up like a Belisha beacon. So I had cancer activity in my sternum. And, you know, then it goes on to, you know, somebody's just had this surgery. Do you want me to put you in touch with her? Really? What? Having the sternum out? Yeah. Oh, okay, <laughs> you, know, you know, really hard decisions to make, but yet I've got two children, uh, you know, and at the time they were seven and, and nine when I was diagnosed with secondary breast cancer. So my thing all the time is I want the best out outcome, not just for me, but my family as well. Yeah, you know, so, I, you know, I want to survive as long as possible and you know, I was given the opportunity of these things. I take them no matter what. And yes, massive side effects and issues and problems. I couldn't even lie down in bed for six months um, on my back. Um, but now I'm kind of back to, you know, a normal. Well, it's, it's, incre it's incredibly inspirational, Joe. Oh, thank you. <laughs> It's um you've it is you've been you've been through so much. It's for for people who haven't um been on that journey, it must be almost like impossible to comprehend. But um, the fact that you've not only done that, but also set up ABCD after breast cancer cancer diagnosis and uh, Met Up UK while dealing with all of that and raising a family and so on, it's um it's incredible. And I I, I hope that as we look forward to like the next five, ten, fifteen years, you know that 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 vision that you paint of a really proactively personalized both sort of diagnosis but also you know range of treatments that we're sort of picking and choosing the best uh, the best fit 
you know, for the best, it's almost, I'm kind of mentally picturing a sort of jigsaw piece now or something like, how do you piece all these, these different things together to, to paint the right, um, you know, I'm now mixing my metaphors horribly to get, to get to the right outcome for that person. You know, um, I think if we can continue to make, make progress on that, we'll be, we'll be doing well. But yeah, that, that is exactly what I would love personalized care to be like that. You've painted a great picture there. Yeah. And I would love that. Well, no, it's, it's hugely inspirational. And thanks again for making the time to, to come on today, um, Joe Taylor. If anyone wants to find out more about um, ABCD or MedUp UK, we'll, um, we'll make sure the links are in the, in the show notes. Um, but thank you. Thank you, Chris. And can I just say one more thing? Dark Pink campaign. So 31 figures. Uh, touring, they will be touring around the UK. Um, watch out for them on the website. They're currently in Manchester. Uh, 31 figures depicting 31 people who die every day, 31 days in October, 31 stories of patients. So that's what's, that's what's happening. Links back to the videos. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word. Mm-hmm.